It is here that God calls us. God calls out to us, whisper-like, to come close. God calls us through a thunderous crashing wave commanding our attention. So we gather to worship God who is here with us, here for us, here in us. Blessed be the name of God. The Apostle Paul once wrote, I do not do the good I want. That is the beginning of confession for Paul and for all of us. We come before God with the truth of our lives. For not loving you with all our heart, O God. For not loving you with our whole soul, O God. For not loving you with our minds, O God. For not loving you with all our strength, O God. Holy and life-giving God, forgive us and show us your kindness that we might do the same. Invisible yet ever-present God, you make yourself known in us, in the teacher, the dishwasher, the immigrant, the gardener, the bookkeeper, and in those who sell us CLU t-shirts in the bookstore. Mirror-like, they reveal your love. Stir in me the desire to show the same kind of love and passion. Amen. You may be seated. Today's reading is from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without pretense, reject what is evil, cling to what is good. Here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. Grace to you in peace from the God who loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us so that we might love as God loves. Dear friends, don't you love a short text? <laughs> that means a short sermon, right? It's good to be with you this morning, particularly with my brothers and sisters in Christ in ministry. Great to have our first call pastors on campus and to be able uh, to share with them this week as I rejoice in the opportunity to share with the CLU community today. Now, I'm going to sound maybe a bit impious this morning because at times I'm a bit befuddled by the many discussion of God's love which intrinsically attaches itself to the speaker, or in other words, to me. Often, the discussion of God's love is all about God's love for me. Well, to be sure, that is the gospel's message. Indeed, John 3.16, God reminds us that love goes to us. But is the love of God more than just for me? Now, I remember very vividly 
when I in seminary, I learned of Luther's for meanness. And it was very, very meaningful. And I better understood the meaning it was for Luther in his own depth of angst about, can I be loved? Does God really love me? And how that drove him uh, to find a gracious and loving God. So that for meanness, much in the great theologian Paul Tillich, goes to that correlation model, where you take the existential question of Luther and of the medieval period, can I find a loving and gracious God? And you then is answered by the gospel message. That makes sense. And it was one of his great discoveries, and it certainly was a great discovery for me as well. But I must admit, growing up in a home in which as many of you probably already know or have not, if don't know, have surmised that a weak ego was not a problem, that my sense of being loved was not a problem because I certainly had parents who loved me and who were very, very clear about God's love for me. What seemed to be more of a challenge for me was how does that love get translated into the world around me? In fact, closest to me my sister. How do I love my sister? Is that possible? That, by the way, was the same question that she raised. How do I love my friends at school who made my life less than joyful? How do I love the other? So on the one hand, the beautiful gospel message is indeed that God loves me so much. And yes, God loves me. But then the question is, what does that mean for how I love? God's love for me is more than just a model. It is also the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian to love and to express that love. Often, uh, when I was in the parish, when I would be doing marital counseling, it wasn't too long in which there would begin a discussion about if you really love me. Excellent point. If you really love me, it's an argument for action. How does one show that? Remember Journey's song, I want to know what love is? I want you to show me. Well, for those of you present this morning with my Religion 100 class of the past, some of this is going to sound vaguely familiar, if not horribly familiar. But it's, it's really relevant uh, to our topic today. Let love be without pretense. Reject what is evil. Cling to what is good. Without pretense. Pretense is something where you profess rather than real intention. Now, because of some of the work that I've done in leadership studies, I would have loved had Paul used a different Greek word there that could be translated 
love is authentic. Oh, now I've done some work in the discussion about authenticity. And in, in our life today, we, we talk a lot about authenticity. And maybe in a sense, our translations help, help us when they talk about let love be genuine. That's what you will find in other translations. And I was kind of looking for something kind of a little, little deeper than that. Let love be without pretense. Not just professed, but rather real. One of the questions that has always dazzled me around was why did Christianity grow in the first fourth century? I mean, often when we speak of organizations and events, we, we look at external factors and the, the kind of change that goes on as an explanation for some internal things that are going on within the organization. And often what has happened is that these external factors are making a tremendous impact for the organization, most oftenly for the worse. But that wasn't true in earliest Christianity. I mean, can you imagine to try to grow an organization in the context of utter and violent persecution? Can you imagine that? But yet that's exactly what happened in early Christianity. That's exactly what took place over the first four centuries. So by the middle of the fourth century, Christianity, get this, 52.9% of the Roman Empire. It had nothing, nothing to do with Constantine's decree that Christianity is now legal. Nothing to do with that. It was growing in the midst of persecution, intense persecution. I don't know about you, but I just don't want to be eaten by a lion. How, how, do you, how does that have to do with my faith? But yet it did, it grew. And so a very wonderful uh, sociologist of religion by the name of Rodney Stark has some thoughts about that. I want to share with you a little bit about what stark uh, conclusion uh, drives us to maybe explain the power of love that Paul's talking about and the New Testament is talking about for us this morning. So what was so revolutionary about early Christianity? It lay in its moral imperatives. Loving one's neighbor as oneself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. These were not mere slogans. We know from the historical record that early Christians supported orphanages. In fact, they created them. They supported widows, the elderly, and the poor. They concerned themselves with a lot of slaves. In other words, I want to suggest that early Christians really did love without pretense. Not just each other, but the other. The 
But the question was, where does this capacity for service come from? Oh, indeed, it is a product of the love which the early Christians were called to embrace. But it was more than just that. They also had the means to do it. Interestingly enough, early Christianity was very much an upper echelon movement within society. So the wealthy embraced the claims of Christianity as well. So two very important forms of resources were a part of early Christianity. One, the motivation to be a volunteer, Christians volunteered. Number two, through giving, they were able to finance their activity. The problem is for the Greco-Roman pagan world, they were not able to meet that challenge. They couldn't motivate volunteers, and giving was not something to brag about. An interesting story occurs in, in 362, where Emperor Julian launches a campaign to revive paganism. I'll get the dates, the middle of the fourth century. Christianity has already been legalized, not the religion of the empire. They're already a majority within the empire, and that's creating a problem. So Emperor Julian wants to match Christian benevolence. In a letter to a prominent pagan priest, Julian writes, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priest, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. He says rather snidely, they not only support the poor, but our poor as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So Julian sets out this, this challenge to the temples. He needed a commitment to motivate behavior, but it wasn't there. The moral imperatives did not reach out to those people. Not only were the gods and goddesses of questionable character, they often offered nothing that could motivate humans to go beyond self-interested acts of propitiation. In fact, many pagan temples were eating clubs, that is to say, where the host furnished an animal to be sacrificed to the gods, then after which the beast was cooked and eaten by his or her many invited guests. And it should be noted that uh, the temples employed very skilled chefs. With that being said, perhaps nothing demonstrates these contrasts so vividly as the ways in which Christians the Greco-Romans responded to the plagues and struck the empire, as they did in the years 165 and again in 251. The pagan response was panic and retreat. Those who could fled for refuge in the countryside. Even Galen, the most famous physician of classical times, left Rome and stayed in his country estate until the danger has passed, as did those of means who had homes to flee to political leaders, and even priests themselves. But those ordinary Greeks and Romans who could not flee, they attempted to avoid all contact with the victims. So as soon as a symptom would appear, they would 
take the victim and place them into the street. Yes, even their own families would do this. Join the piles of the sick and dying. But the early Christians responded very differently. They didn't flee. Neither the wealthy nor the Christian priests. Rather, they took sustained efforts to nourish the sick. Not only their own, but the many others who were discarded into the streets. To be sure, some of those who nourished the sick lost their own lives. But perhaps it has been estimated that as many as two-thirds of those who were nursed and who otherwise would have died without care lived. Now, of course, we have the wonderful perspective of epidemiologists who, when looking at the data, will tell us that, well, providing food and especially water to these victims can prevent a substantial amount of deaths. The truth of the matter is, the early Christians didn't know that. All they knew was the moral imperative to love. That's all they knew. Now, the problem was this did not go unnoticed. Not only because of the large number of Christians who survived, but also those others who survived. And it lent immense credibility to the early Christian reputation as being miracle workers. I think this story is relevant for us today. Because when we think of God's love for us, that that love was expressed in an action. And for us today, the love that we have in Christ and is poured out through us through the Holy Spirit is indeed to be expressed in action. Now, I'm not going to be so presumptuous to tell you and me what that ought to be, but simply to suggest this. Paul exhorts us that love is to be without pretension. In other words, profess. And to be real and to be lived. Love lived is quite challenging. I often place myself in the position of those early Christians going and serving those who are dying, knowing full well where I may be next. And I ask myself, how then shall I live that love? Amen.